Jan Cohen-Cruz has given a lot to the field of arts-based community development. By that I mean that there's a significant body of academic and community-based artwork, scholarship, teaching, and organizing that are just covered with her fingerprints. These include prison work, collaborations with theater of the oppressed instigator Augusto Boal, writing six books on performance and community change, and producing numerous creative change initiatives addressing issues like community gardens, gentrification, and arts-based healing in post-Katrina New Orleans. And if that isn't enough, she founded the Imagining America program in support of artists and scholars building and healing communities and founded that organization's national journal called Public. Like I said, she's done a lot. To my mind, though, the place where her fingerprints have probably made the most indelible impressions has been on the hearts and minds of the thousands of undergrad and graduate students who've been fortunate enough to learn and work with her. Now, I say learn with her, not from her, because that has always been the thrust of her work. Knowing that in a collaborative creative practice based on give and take, sharing the wealth, and collective discovery, the curtain really never falls. In our conversation, we talk about her early days and influences, what matters most in community change work, and her latest book, Meeting the Moment, Socially Engaged Theater 1965-2020. to This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, learning the ropes. So the goal here is to just ask some simple questions and have you reflect on them. The first one, it's actually turned into almost the most uh, interesting one. And that is, what's your work? And another way of putting it, what is your practice? Yeah, my practice has evolved into writing. And that's at the heart of my practice. And it happened because, you know, I began like many of us do as an actor practitioner. I wanted to act and because I was from this little teeny town, I left home very young, 15, and I found places where I could train and see what was going on in the world. And, and the more I traveled, the more I saw how limited my own sense of what one can do with art was. And so increasingly, I was building up this sense of a need to write about, talk about, communicate. The, all the things art was doing in the world that I had no idea of, but it took me till teaching in a university and I had to publish or perish to actually do that writing. But I think it had been building up for a long time. That's been what I could contribute to this field is just be one of those who chronicles and says, this is important. Look at this. Look at what this means. Look at the fact that I went into Trenton State Prison with the New York City Street Theater, and we were doing this workshop that was nice, but it wasn't that. It was, my God, I carried prejudices about people in prison. I didn't even know it. It allowed me to connect with people in every situation, and I didn't know another way to do that on, on a deep level. And I see art doing that for many people. I think that's an enormous need. And so my piece of that is to write about it and teach about it and say, look at this, look what you look what you could do with art. Look what people are doing. Look what this one is doing and that one is doing. And it's just larger than I think most of us ever knew. So one of the things you just 
triggered for me was obviously the common experience of having um, left Earth and going to the Mars of the correctional environment. Yep. Is this idea of a settled person from, quote, a normal life entering into a place that shatters your perception about who you are and what the world is about. Totally. With art making as both your skill set and your life raft that, that does two things. It forces you to transcend your own internally imposed limits, you know. Well, I know who these people are, but it also intrinsically educational. You can't help but learn. Yeah. But then you start doing it. Is that, does that ring true? Oh, it's it, 100% true. Yeah. At the time, I had loved the, the open theater. They were just my favorite experimental company and it's deep, beautiful work. And I had reached the point where they had invited me to stage manage a show they were touring to Europe, which was like to me, like this major thing. But the work in the prison, we were one of the guys had the idea of adapting Kafka's The Trial and writing about how instead of Joseph K. waking up and he's arrested and he doesn't know why, he's a sociologist. He goes into a prison to apply for a job and he's given simulated treatment. They lock him in a cell, but then they then the warden goes on holiday. And so he's telling people, wait a minute, I don't belong here. And they say, oh, yeah, that's what they all say. And so this whole cast of characters like you surely met in the correctional institutions. You see how much they're more invested in keeping someone in because that's their job than helping them out at this terrible closed system. So that was the play that Quasi Balagoon suggested and Gil Costello wrote based on our improvs. And I didn't go to Europe to work with the open theater. I wanted to be just exactly where I was. And that was also just an amazing thing that what I thought I wanted shifted once I was out in the real world. And it actually led to my pedagogical approach, having been done a lot of my work in higher ed, which is field work for actors, that whenever possible, there's some little component of my classes where they're out in the world actually having some experience. I'm hoping will open in them to the students through the contact with this kind of work. And that all goes back to the prison. Well, and also to this idea, which is one of the foundations of this podcast, which is an artist, particularly an actor or a writer or a director without a story or with a story to tell that has absolutely nothing to do with their own experience is rather two-dimensional. And that to engage the world in ways that are a little scary, a little adventurous, experimental, yeah. exercises the imagination in a way that it just is not available in just the mind. Yeah, and it leads so directly to the practice of developing work in collaboration because I've been privileged to get to learn some things about form and techniques and exercises, but these stories, it's their stories. And that's so basic in the work of the that we've both been doing. And it's just so interesting how we each sort of learn it. Of course, you shouldn't appropriate something of someone's, but it's a way you learn that I trust more because it comes out of experience and reinforced by ideas and theory. Yeah. And because agency is such an important part of it, the feedback loop is very quick, very short, and often abrupt, which okay. is if you step over the line, if you actually do start taking, stealing, appropriating, not listening, being disrespectful, the culture of the work 
basically says that uh, this work doesn't go forward in those conditions. Now, you started talking about the journey that you took to get to where you are. Are there other places in that journey that were seminal for you in forming the body of your practice? Uh, and didn't you spend some time in France during the period of student uprisings and strikes? Yeah, I was in, in Paris in 69, which was right after the events of May 68. <laughs> and one still felt that excitement that took place in the, the street, both literal street theater and the way people enacted what they most wanted in the streets and all kinds of alliances were formed that hadn't been formed. And it was so cross-sectoral. It wasn't a bunch of theater people making a play about how we'd like students and workers to work together. No, it was students from the Sorbonne and workers from the Citroën plant who joined together because there were policies they were fighting together and they were communicating it in the street. I really had very early experiences that taught me that those things were important. I was in this touring theater company in New England when I was 18, and it was also 1969, and we had this federal grant, and the way it worked is the federal grant would pay half the expense, and anybody who invited us to perform, they would pay the other half. And there was this community group in this little town in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. They wanted us to come perform, but they didn't have the money, but they said they knew how to get the money. That was easy. All they had to do is do a community potluck. Everybody came out. It was the best meal. Everyone paid five bucks and then we do the show. And it was so amazing how first sitting down, breaking bread, how the agency of the people to want the play and they knew they had something of value to get it and that it was worth so much more than just if they had all kicked in five bucks. The whole thing of what they did, it just changed the whole temperature of the room. And that really taught me something like, how do you set up these events so people can really come together in some kind of common ground, their mutual respect and recognition? And that was an early experience that I've since realized really was profound for me. What was that play? The play was The Devil and Daniel Webster, which, of course, made sense. Daniel Webster being the favorite son of New Hampshire. Harvey Grossman was a, a lovely human being and he adapted it and directed it. And I thought it was very well thought out that if you want to perform places where theater isn't part of everyday life, what is it that you're going to bring that people are going to want to see? And I'm thinking about the, the subject of that play and the times in which it was presented, something that resonated for those people in that time. True. I know the whole evening Everyone was very engaged. Everyone was really glad to be there. People really enjoyed it. There was this uh, this whole thing about the, the great speaker that Daniel Webster was. Mm -hmm. um, and it mattered that he was a local boy. And it was about the value of finding powerful ways to communicate. And, uh, and that everyone really enjoyed. So what led you to more sustained work in institutions and communities? Since then, I've done other touring theater. I was in the New York City Street Theater Company a couple years later, and that's what ended up getting me into the prison. The director of the street theater was invited to 
do a workshop in a prison and he asked me to come with him. I got very involved with the company and Richard Levy, the director, and we thought, wouldn't it be great instead of having this tour where we try to go to as many places as we can, what if we choose the three places we felt there was the strongest connection and possibilities and spend one third of the summer with each of those three communities? So there's really time to see what this piece can be in this community. Mm. Though we didn't do that because the street theater crashed and burned. We tried to live communally. Someone who was jealous hit me over the head with a frying pan. That's why I'm still crazy after all these years. Other things happened. But that idea, I never forgot that idea. And it was an idea that was that given that I love ideas, I love practice and I love ideas. So when I studied with Richard Schechner when I read his idea of the seven phases of performance so that performance isn't just the play. I used to think performance meant you did a play, a playwright wrote. It happened in a theater building. That's what I thought when I was a kid in Reading, Pennsylvania. You know, then I began to realize, oh, my God, that, that's like a small part of it. Then when I read Richard, who said, no, first, first, there's some kind of training. Usually there's some kind of workshops. There's training. Number one, there's workshops where you start playing with stuff. There's rehearsals once you're starting to set something. There's warm-up. What happens right before you go on? There's the show, number five, right? <laughs> then number six, there's cool-down. Like, what happens right after? That's like you asking, was there a conversation after? And then number seven, there's aftermath, and that's more long-term. And realizing you could put the emphasis on any of those. And yes. for different events, you do put the emphasis on different ones. And Schechner, like Liz Lerman hiked the horizontal in that regard. Like he didn't assume that the play was more important than if you're using theater to rehearse a public act of public disobedience. That's just as important that you act it out. What might happen? What do people do? That's a great use of performance, but it's using the workshop component. And I'm thinking about that continuum. So here's Liz's continuum and the process, the seven part process. And of course, the, the practice as you and I know it also has some other appendages to it. Okay, long before there's ever the thought of making a piece of, of theater, there is the research. Who, yeah. Where are we? Who, what's the story here? What do these people care about? Who wants to play? Is there trust here? And then on the other end yeah. is, what did we do? What energy did we just unleash in this community? What can come of that? Yeah. The one at the end, I think, does fit in the model as part of after cool down and aftermath. I think research and how Jawale Zolar talks about entering community. How do you know that these people want you there? Exactly. And that part of research. So I think you're really right that that phase both the subject matter and, and researching a potential relationship. So one of the things I think a lot of people uh, are struggling with now, particularly in education, which is... Uh, intensely relational, right? We're in the room. My being with you is really important to our learning. It's how this works. So now we're in this pandemic environment in this place, which is to my mind, like an experiment, like learning about trust inside out. There's so much we assume about where trust comes from. Yeah. When I'm sitting in a room with you, I could tell when you don't believe me or when you're maybe a little distressed, but you're not saying anything, sitting back in your chair, or you're engaged. And that energy is palpable. And in this environment, 
it's way harder. My colleague Kathy Bentley talks about a play that she directed between the town of Brussels, Illinois, with 450 people, and Normandy in St. Louis, which is where Normandy High School is, uh, the neighborhood of Pagedale, and where Michael Brown, who was murdered by the police, went to school. So in two different communities, bounded by a river and a ferry, and the critical question on the table was, can we generate enough trust so that these people can even begin to work together with no assumptions at all? Prior to this, these two communities had absolutely nothing to do with each other, but it happened. These high school students and community members found the trust to work together to produce as you like it in both communities with a river in between. They called it Love at the River's Edge. Part two, artists, immigrants, and gardens. So if I could ask, is there some story that is a part of your journey that really personifies your aspirations and the potential impact of this work when it really gets going right? For one thing I can say, I think part of why this work is so important and why I have hope for it is it's so decentralized. There's so many ways to do it. If we just look in the realm of cross-sectoral, you have artists embedded in municipalities, you know, so agencies all across the country now willing to try a different way that's way more metaphoric and community building using art to try to carry out immigration policy or children and family services or transportation problems, you know. So there are people working like that. There's all the work around how art contributes to community building and making sure that it doesn't fall into gentrification, you know, how to make sure it's equitable. There's therapeutic direction. There's so many ways to come at it. Community organizing, policy people focused on how when you change the story, you might be able to communicate uh, with different people. My observation is that because it's coming from so many directions, that it's got a chance to infiltrate, embed itself with people in all walks of life. Do you have an example of where you've seen that really uh, manifest? Yeah. Having worked with the wonderful Pam Corza through a blade of grass and animating democracy on this research around artists embedded in municipalities. And then I was following the project in New York City, at, in the cultural affairs in New York City, under Tom Finkelpearl called PAIR, Public Artists in Residence. And so I got to follow seven of the artists in their relationship with their the agency liaisons. And for example, the Cuban, uh, in this case, visual artist, Tanya Bruguera, was working with the Mayor's Office for Immigration. New York City is pretty progressive in terms of what it offers immigrants, refugees, whether you have legal papers or not. The problem was the level of trust is so low that there's an awful lot of people who won't use the services. And certainly given the current federal government, there's plenty good reason, but even on the city level. And so the head of that office met on any number of occasions with Bruguera to talk about what can you help devise so that more immigrants and refugees will trust that we mean it 
And she would come up with an idea and they would really discuss it and take it apart. And what they ended up feeling stood the best chance, partly because it was replicable. They started in a particular neighborhood of Queens where she had done a lot of work already because Pingle Pearl used to run the Queens Museum and they had done a lot of work in the neighborhood, uh, which was very cool. So she already had this whole network of immigrants. It was pretty much of a women's immigration organization where there there was all kind of training happening. And so she hired uh, women from that organization The mayor's office trained them, and here's what we actually offer immigrants. What are your questions? What are your worries? They put together material. They had it really beautifully designed and translated for that neighborhood into Spanish. It would have been other languages in other neighborhoods. They got these little yellow bicycles and these little yellow vests and these little yellow backpacks and these lovely women, largely brown-skinned women in pairs would go to public places, parks and farmers markets, and they would enter in conversation and they they passed out thousands of statistics because, of course, these things both have a quantitative and qualitative measures were really impressive for the number of people yeah. who felt that there were things that they would accept from the city that they wouldn't before because it's not just the information, it's who you're getting it from. And that's what Tanya was able to make happen. And then not only who you're getting it from, but how do those people learn how to communicate a sense of authority without being authoritarian? In a way, they were performing past along the information, uh, which, which of course, doesn't mean it wasn't true. Performance doesn't mean it isn't true, but it means there's a way that you are aware that you are trying to convince someone of something. So how many other municipal agencies ended up with artists uh, working with them? I think there's been at least 10 agencies by now that have had artists in residence. That's why the exciting thing is if lots of people are doing it in lots of ways, then that's all the more people who get this intimate experience of it. And in the process, there's also something good socially happening that the agency can't do itself, that art has ways of doing. So that's one example. So here's an interesting thing that rises up from the story that you just told. Artists became co-designers of processes that helped people, particularly with regard to trust. Yeah. Which is an essential element that municipalities and bureaucracies are are really hard put to do well. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. And that is that often the delivery system is in between... Two pressure points. One of them is a pressure point from above looking for numbers or results or some kind of legislation to get fulfilled. And the other side, which is a community that is intrinsically skeptical of why are who are you? Why are you there? And one of the most interesting things to me is is when the person in between actually does have a stake in the hierarchy that's happening. And they're basically, I am here in service to you. Yeah. And uh, and I think people just get that. Oh, okay, you're not trying to put something over on me. Yeah. I'm not fulfilling some mandate and you're not going to report me or judge me. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's so powerful and interesting about that position is for a while in the heyday of community-based theater, there was all this skepticism that the artist isn't of the community. Isn't that going to be a problem? But in fact, in what you and I are talking about right now Part of the power is that they're not part of either community. 
right, kind of creative interlocutor. And if you think about classical Greece, what was theater other than an intermediary between the material world and the spirit world? That was pretty much what they needed. They needed a bridge to transcend this gap because the world was a pretty mysterious place. Are there some other instances of creative approaches to problems uh, faced by public agencies? Yeah, yeah. There was a project that uh, we did with NYU drama students and community gardens in New York City. We worked with four community gardens. It was over a two-year period. So first, there were these Lower East Side gardens, and NYU is in between the, the East Village and the West Village. So it's very close. There are lots of community gardens, and the East Village used to be this very funky, inexpensive, wild place, creative place. But it, partly because of NYU being there, it became more and more expensive over the years. And in fact, some gardens were dismantled to make more housing because of NYU. I was teaching at that institution and they were students at that institution. We were implicated. We're not neutral. The rents go up and they and that certain things were lost and not available to people who had been their stewards for years because of NYU. But we still represented the institution, whether we liked it or not. One good thing about that project was working on how do you, how do you walk that walk? How do you take responsibility for where your privilege has put you? And yet, at the same time, say, look, this isn't monolithic. I love the gardens. Let's see if there's some modest amount of community organizing through theater making we can do that might help protect more of the gardens. And then there's one up in Harlem because of a guy who I'd actually met many, many years earlier in that prison workshop I did. Haja now lives in Harlem and he and his wife are stewards of several gardens up there. He was so excited. He was one of the pillars of that workshop and it was so exciting to meet him again and work on this with him. Then there's a garden in the Bronx that's part of The Point, which is a very cool organization that does equitable community development and organizing and had helped develop this beautiful space where anybody could take a, a canoe out on the Bronx River. Oh, yeah, The Point. They're a shining star in the Bronx, a community development corporation, actually, that has been mixing and melding arts-based tools and strategies to move the community's priorities, I think, since, I don't know, the 1990s. And then the fourth one was the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, which is a public garden. The Brooklyn Botanic Garden is so cool. They they have something called Project Green Thumb, and they contribute a lot to community gardens all over Brooklyn. So the students were all affiliated with one of those four. We, we worked with Sabrina Peck, the director, who had been in Cornerstone Theater. She was an original member of Cornerstone, and she really knew how to do a process going into a community and were we going to adapt a story that existed? Were we going to make something? We ended up doing a process where we gathered stories. Uh, Peggy Pettit, who's in a wonderful community story gatherer and performer, worked with students and we gathered stories. We created a, a piece about community gardens. The people from the four gardens who were involved were all, there were like 60 people in the piece and we did it at the four gardens. So everyone got to go to each other's gardens and everyone got to exchange ideas about, well, what are you doing? And have you ever run into this law? And did you see there's this great loophole? So in a way, we were providing a platform for people to find other people who knew a whole lot more about it than we did. But it was fun to do a play. And I think that's important. I think the pleasure of making art should never be underestimated that in the midst of these hard struggles, we need the joy. I mean, Bawal used to say, 
It's theater of the oppressed, not theater of the oppressive. We should enjoy doing this together, you know, and sometimes we should even dare to be um, cathartic. And so the combination of pleasure, really experiencing the combination of being situated between community organizing and community art making, the students really learning how generous you had to be when you're working with people who aren't also going to experimental theater with you. So it's like a whole new level to what ensemble means. So that was a great experience. What evolved in terms of a play, a work, a performance? Yeah. So we made a piece. It was called Common Green, Common Ground. And it the arc of the play was from the beginning of reclaiming space. In most community gardens in New York, not all, but most were these abandoned lots, and especially in the 70s, you'd find drug needles and you'd, there'd be prostitution and there'd be rats and garbage dump. So it was the people from Harlem, Haja and his community. Haja is also in a gospel choir at his church. The man can sing. And so the very first scene was about how they reclaimed the space for their main garden. It happens in song, and in the course of singing, Everybody transformed this mess into a beautiful place. So that's how it began. And it just went through the whole cycle. And in the course of how it built and good things had happened, bad things had happened, one of the gardens during those two years did get bulldozed. So that was in it. So it was both a kind of life cycle story of community gardens, but using particulars alternating among these four. But, you know, some scenes were just the people from one garden. It was Partly so we could rehearse the damn thing. You couldn't get everyone together all the time. Where would you even meet 60 people? But some was the whole cast, like that very first song, which was pretty thrilling. So, yeah, that's what the play was, singing and dancing. And uh, yeah. So it moved around to each of those. Uh, those four communities. Those four. So it, it, it toured, in a sense? It did a weekend at each one. It did four weekends. Fantastic. And the, the outcome, it was an organizing effort, basically? It, energized people. They felt other people cared about what they were doing. There were people in communities who cared about the garden, but they hadn't been too involved. But the idea of being in this play and there were these NYU students and there were going to be audiences and we'd get to go to different neighborhoods. It ended up getting more people involved in each garden. They exchanged idea and tactics. The idea was to try to find one action in each community that would help further what they were trying to do. And so we did various things in each one. And so it was part of a very long process of of making those sustainable spaces that are really open to lots of people for the pleasures of getting a little bit of nature and cities. It reminds me so much of how often when I ask the question, that I just asked you, What's a, what was the project? What's the story of something that happened? How hyper-local they are. Yeah. How profound the work is. H- how compared to main stage theater work, how completely d- different and opposite it is. It's, yeah. it's saying the t- terroir of this play is all the difference. It was made and created and performed in the soil of the place in which it was born. Yeah. It's not going um, to Chicago and Los Angeles. No. And how powerful that is and how historic in the fact that it replicates the genesis of theater, which is theater was intrinsically about the tribe and its story and its need to connect pieces together. The reason you can't bring it somewhere because the it is the process. Yes. What was so powerful about what we did was the whole process. And it was wonderful to have a play 
it, the plays are special moments, but the really wonderful thing is to do the whole thing and then you want to find out what people somewhere want to do. Part three, I am thou. So you spent your life with people who want, want to learn about how this works. And one of the things that's obvious to me is that you're a classic servant leader, which is that separating your learning from their learning is impossible. But what I would ask you is, in a brief moment, for people who are hearing these stories and saying, God, yeah, what an amazing thing to be able to do in the world. What really matters in this work? What are the things that stand out to you that are not optional in making this work have integrity and it impact? Yeah, I mean, when I ask people what's the most important thing in training, almost everyone says listening. And of course, that's because you don't know what you're going to do unless you've listened because it's got to come out of the dialogue. And But you're not listening because you're like this do-gooder who's just going to do what somebody wants. You're, you're listening for also where the juice is for you. You're part of it too. You the facilitator, you the one who's come in with these skill sets. So listening also to what, Jazz is you, and certainly what jazz is them, the people you want to work with. I like something Rick Lowe said, where he says he doesn't want to work with just any community. He wants to work with a proactive community. He gets really excited when he sees people trying to do something that seemed like such a great thing to do. And he goes, you know, I have access to something that will help them do this. And I'm so excited for them to do this. I want to see this done. Well, let me add a little what I can add. And that comes to mind, you know, in his project, Grow Houses are just such a great example of that. He provided that space and people who were already doing these really cool things, what it was to do it in what's almost like this village. So that comes to mind, which is also so listening, reciprocity, this sort of dialogue. I try to think about who benefits, you know, so-called creative placemaking, I think gets a bad rap. And Eric Takashima reminded me that creative placemaking really came out of the recession and trying to figure out how can artists get money to make it through the recession. And I think that's really important to remember. It made me much more sympathetic to what ended up looking so much like gentrification. Oh, yeah, artists can help design these town centers, and then they'll be so cool, and people will want to go there, and the tax base will go up. And, of course, you need enough taxes to pay for the city. But the problem is who benefits and who suffers, who's displaced because of it, and there's ways to do it better. And I, the people who ended up moving that initiative forward and thinking of it in the first hand, I mean, I think they got much more deliberate about making sure that people weren't displaced through it. And, and making sure that it, the people who benefited aren't the people who typically always benefit. So that's something I think is important to keep in mind, who benefits. I think humility is right up there. It, it, it's always learning. Like often if someone says something and I don't understand it, and so if I really try to understand it, usually there'll be something there and I just needed them to explain it to me more. It's not like they were lacking. It was I was lacking. In your article, Remapping Performance, there's a couple of things that jumped out for me. One of them was Marshall Gayer's story of Me, We, Now. And you're quoting Rabbi Hillel, which resonates with what you just said. One of the unfortunate afflictions of what I would say is a do-gooder in the making is I have to be selfless. Yeah. In fact, I may even have to suffer. Yeah. 
in order to save these poor people, yeah. which is, of course, a, a, a missionary stance. And Rabbi Hillel says, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? But if I'm only for myself, what am I? If not what now, now when? when? So it also reminds me of Liz's continuum, which is if we get stuck in the dichotomies of the world, you know, I'm a good guy, I'm a bad guy kind of thing. And we talked about multi-sector, but also multivalent, yeah. which is often contradictory, which yeah. brings us to the heart of, of theater, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of art making, which yeah. has, if there's no tension, there's no drama, Yeah, we're really barking up the wrong tree. Could you talk a little bit more about this me, we, now? Yeah, I think you articulated really Beautifully, and I love that you reminded me that Rabbi Hillel is there and not leaping ourselves out. What is it? Also, Martin Buber, I and that, you know, it, it, it's about relationships. What you were just saying made me also think about how art is so much about a process of discovery. And that was one of the challenges in the municipal work is that municipal staffers, they're under a lot of pressure to have results. And they're supposed to know the results they're going to get before they do a project. And if those results seem worth getting, they are allowed to do it. And so here they bring in artists who say, I don't know what the results are going to be. It's all about discovery. And so that's an incredible leap of faith to do that. It's a very proactive thing to be on a journey of discovery. And so you have to be involved. You're, you're going through it. You're trying to figure it out. So how do your students respond to the me-we tension that is so intrinsic to the work? I, I never trust when students say, oh, I do this work because I want to help people. Someone said that in a class a couple of days ago. And I said, look, of course, that's a beautiful impulse to want to help people. But what's in it for you? And I mean that in the best sense. What draws you there? People don't want to be your project. They don't want to be the object of your beneficence. They want you to be interested in the same thing they're interested in, and you want to work by their side towards it because you care about that thing too. They want to work by your side. They don't want to be having you pull them up. And I, and in my experience with students, I often think that it's a lack of confidence that they don't feel that they have anything worth sharing in the world or worth doing. So the best thing they can do is help somebody else. And that's not a good reason to help someone else. I think they do better getting clear about that, not being unclear about it as if it's okay if they do it, if they're helping someone, but if it's not okay if they do it, if it's their own interest. It's okay to be interested. In fact, it's essential. Why would you keep doing it if you've lost interest? When I was running the California State Summer School for the Arts, which is six weeks at Cal Arts, 14 to 18-year-olds, from all over the state of California and really incredible faculty, wonderful artists. And I'll never forget a 15 year old who stops an artist in the middle of a reading of a poem in a rather abrupt way, which was not protocol, obviously, but said, why are you here? Huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. And it was spontaneous. And it was not angry. Yeah. And the conversation that took place afterwards was that she said, I got scared that you're a mercenary. Yeah. And I want to learn from someone who's safe, who's pulling for me. And I was like, whoa, great question. 
part four. What's next? So, my last question. We started off talking about the moment we're in, upside down and inside out, and given the work we've been talking about, what is the practice that needs to rise up for this moment of community history, national history, world history that we're slogging through? What is the challenge and what is the opportunity? Yeah, yeah. It really seems like a moment where we have to be both inward looking and outward looking. And and one thing that I've been very moved by in reading like HowlAround, I like HowlAround, though, that the online theater platform. And there have been a, a lot of pieces about theater companies taking the conversation about Black Lives Matter, for example, and saying, how do I translate that into my theater company? What would change on the board? What would change in programming? What would change in the staff? It's let's manifest it in the arena where I can manifest it. So that's number one. So then, so for me, I think, okay, what do I have to do different in my teaching? So for one, one of my guests in my class will be Carol McCord, who will put us through a dismantling racism workshop. I never have put my, my, my theater students through a dismantling racism workshop. So the one place we can do something is right here. So I think that's important. At the same time, in also in the way we began the conversation, I think there's a funny way in which we can say, okay, what is my reach? What can I do? So there you are with this project. And here I am with this book where I'm really trying to say, okay, I've been so lucky to meet so many people who inspire me and whose life makes sense to me and how they're using art. And they're anywhere from like 25 to 80 years old. And they've done it in all different moments throughout these years. And they've done it around all different issues in different places and with different people. And so that's something I can bring together. And I feel like it's something I can do that's outward facing, that builds on where my life has taken me. And so I think that's a good thing to think about. What am I well positioned to do in my most immediate, concrete world? There are things I need to do a heck of a lot better that this time is telling me. And then what is it because of what my road has been that I can put out there that makes sense at this moment? And so if you just multiply that around, you know, health, economy, and race, if that's not enough, those three are all at such breaking points. So, Jan, could you say more about uh, your book, the, you know, the territory that it covers and, you know, when it's going to be available? Yes. Well, first, let me say it's our book, um, our being myself and Rad Pereira, who's about 40 years younger than me. We're different racially. We're different national background. Rad was born in Brazil. Rad is gender fluid. We're very aligned in principles about socially engaged performance, but the actual practice, Rad is part of a whole other generation than me. And as, at a certain point, I realized that I couldn't write the book I wanted to write by myself because I wanted this 55-year span coming from the mid-60s. And I'm not embedded enough in the last 10 or even 15 years, and Rad is. So for somebody who is not in the the forest of uh, community-based theater over yeah. that period of time, could you just give a sense of the scope of what you're exploring sure. here? 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, one thing that had really struck me from being in this field for so long, like you, is there's so many people doing it under different names and often they don't know about each other. Yeah. And there are people who think they've invented it. And and I wanted people to know about each other. So that's why we wanted the 55 year, year span. And we wanted people diverse in all kinds of ways. And the result of that is that the the chapter, which is about people's influences, I, I used to think, well, there's certain influence. Obviously, everyone in the U.S. was influenced by the Federal Theater Project. No, wrong. I mean, they're very, very different influences, very, very different attitudes about things, which, of course, makes sense. But it feels very timely to me in that way, because I feel we've all had to get more conscious. Part of what we went through um, with the pandemic was also just this consciousness about what it means to be such a racialized and polarized society as we are. So I, it felt really good to be interviewing these people and finding a way to have all the voices and the voices contradict each other in many ways, but they don't contradict each other in terms of principles. For example, who are we became a big question. You know, a couple of the Native American artists I spoke with said, why would I perform for white people? My community is other Native people. We're, we're always missed represented or unrepresented. That's where I want to put my energy. Others said the arts are such an opportunity for us to come together. So there were many different opinions. It's not written as interviews. It's a narrative that Rad and I are telling, but it's very much driven by what we learned. And the voices of the 67 people we spoke with are very present throughout. One of the things that's always been important to me that I believe is one of the great weaknesses of America, which is our almost distaste for history. You know, starting with history and different people's historical influences, which we put chronologically, um, and it's and, it, and it's precisely, you know, for the reason you're suggesting, which is things are situated. I mean, the name of the book is Meeting the Moment. You know, things are situated at a particular time and place, and they're not the same at different times and places. <laughs> yeah, and that's like, absolutely. And yeah. so, yes, that's very important in the book. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to an opportunity to read it. You want to give folks an idea of when it's coming? Yes, yes. So it's going to come out in May 2022. And it is, as you say, New Village Press. And if you go to certainly NYU Press, because New Village is distributed by NYU Press now, uh, you can pre-order it now, actually. Uh -huh. And it is indeed called Meeting the Moment, Socially Engaged Performance 1965 to 2020 by those who lived it. Jan Con Cruz, one of my heroes, doing incredible work in an important time. I really appreciate your taking your time. To, to share these thoughts and ideas. No, thank you. And thank you for all the ways you've been a model for me. Just a great star. North oh, back at you. <laughs> back at you. All right. And thank you. Bye. And goodbye and thanks to our listeners who we're happy to say are proliferating around the world in places like India, Ireland, Singapore, Brazil, and in communities all across the U.S., if you're interested in Jan's writing, along with a rapidly growing treasure trove of other authors who are exploring ideas and stories about creative community building, I would encourage you to visit New Village Press at newvillage.org. You will also find the New Village link in our show notes. And if you like what you're hearing, please do share our podcast with your network of friends and subscribe. 
Just a couple of clicks makes all the difference. Story, story, story. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. If you're curious about what that is, check us out at www.artandcommunity.com. The show is written and produced by yours truly, Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscapes are by the stupendously creative Judy Munson. Our editor-in-chief is Andre Nebe, and as always, our inspiration rises up from the mysterious Ook 235. So, until next time, stay well, make good trouble, and spread the good word. <laughs>